Good morning. If you would stand as you're able for the reading of Scripture, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 14 this morning. If you're using the blue Bibles in the seatbacks, it'll be on page 6. Genesis 14, verses 17 through 24. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him, and he said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to him, to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or sandal or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten, and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre take their share. Let's, uh, let's pray as we look at this particular passage. Lord, um, I pray that as we take a deeper look at this, uh, this story, this bit of history, what happened with Abram, that we would or rather that you would help us to understand um, what you intended to communicate. Help us to rightly understand how to apply it to our lives. And I pray, God, that you would do work in our hearts where we would be moved by your spirit to do that. I pray all this in your name. Amen. I'm sure that you've watched um, maybe an, a sporting event, maybe you've watched an award show or something along those lines, and you have seen um, uh, someone, when they're interviewed, ha having won the game, having made the big play, having uh, won the award, you've seen them stand and say, as they're asked, well, what do you, you know, have to say about this? And they say, well, first of all, I want to give glory to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, or I want to give glory to God, right? You've heard someone do that before, and I think sometimes when I hear that, I have to admit, I have to admit that typically I am a little bit skeptical, and that's maybe a problem with me and my heart, I admit, but I'm typically, I assume that they're saying that in a sort of glib or cliche kind of way. Or they think that there's some sort of transaction that if I just make sure that I say these words at the end of the big play, then God will get me more big plays in the future or whatever. 
But truthfully, I don't know their hearts, and I don't know their motivations. And to the extent that it is the true condition of their heart, they're actually doing something that's very much not cliche or glib. They're actually touching on a deeper truth than anything that happened in a ball game or anything that happened in a movie or a performance or whatever. In fact, they're touching on something that happens right here in this passage, I think. Perhaps this passage is the first time that someone ever did that. Okay, I'm being a little bit ridiculous there, maybe taking it a little bit too far, but, but I think there is a connection. I think there is a connection. Last week, Abram rescued his nephew Lot from the hands of four powerful conquering kings, from the hands of four kings who, who were defeating uh, whole groups of people the Bible describes as giants among men, right? And Abram comes in and he rescues Lot and he rescues the people of Sodom and others who Lot was living amongst. And we saw, and we see in this passage, that it was the Lord God who gave Abram that victory, right? Now comes the really, really critical part. Will others recognize it for what it is? Or, or I should say, and who will Abram attribute that success to? There's a temptation that comes when we as Christians, when we as believers, as God's people, succeed. And it doesn't matter what it's in, what we're succeeding in, or what we're not succeeding in, frankly. It doesn't matter what it is. And and though the pressures may mount more and more as we have more and more success, it really doesn't matter the size of the success either. In fact, this can be a temptation even when we're unsuccessful. The temptation is to attribute the success to ourselves or to worldly means and in doing so, seek more on our own terms, thinking or at least expressing that, well, it must be because God is doing the blessing. Rather than waiting on the greater blessing that we're promised from God. Now, I think this is a difficult passage because we want to avoid two pitfalls. We want to avoid the pitfall of saying, well, any time that I'm blessed uh, physically or tangibly in the world, then that must mean that God is blessing me and I must be doing something right. And if I'm not, then I must be doing something wrong. And that's why I'm not being blessed on the one hand. On the other hand, we want to avoid this pitfall of saying, well, if you, if you uh, kind of turn away from any kind of worldly blessing, that means you're a good Christian. And if you don't turn away from any kind of worldly blessing, then, then you must be not following Christ very well. And so we've got these two extremes, right? And here we are with a passage where Abram is, has been and is promised to be legitimately blessed by God. And yet in this situation, what's he to do? And here's the deal. As I prepared this message, what I struggled with is this. How can we keep ourselves 
from this often subtle temptation. Too often, these two options, either uh, pursuing God's blessing or pursuing just kind of worldly success, these two options outwardly look very similar. Sometimes it's clear and we know, but sometimes it's, it's hard to tell the difference. How can we discern whether this is blessing from God or whether it's us just kind of grabbing at worldly wealth? And I say wealth, but I don't merely mean money and possessions. This could be popularity. This could be whatever it is that we would define as worldly success, or that would be seen as worldly success. How can we know when it's God's will to bless us through worldly means versus replacing God's will for worldly success? Here's the bottom line for our our sermon, and what I hope to illustrate. Prioritizing God's glory is critical to discerning God's blessing from worldly success. Prioritizing God's glory above everything else is, I think, the critical piece that is going to help us to discern between God's blessing and worldly success. And this passage can be broken into two parts. Verses 17 through 21, we see two kings, right? Two kings who have two responses and they give two offers to Abram. So we'll call the first part of this two options for successful believers. You got two options. And in verses 22 through 24, what we see is Abram's response to those two offers. We'll call that how successful believers stay faithful believers. And that really is the question for us. How can successful believers stay faithful believers? That's my desire for each of you, that no matter the degree to which the world calls you successful, and some of you, the world will call successful in different areas. Some of you, the world will call unsuccessful in different areas. But no matter that, my desire for you is that you would be faithful. You would be faithful according to the Lord and to the Lord. Faithful to the Lord, faithful to Him with your family, faithful to Him with your church, with your relationships, with your job, faithful to Him with everything. That, Christians, is our scoreboard for life. That's our scoreboard of success. So let's start by examining the two options that are laid out before Abram. Verses 17 through 21, they have an interesting structure, and I want you to see this in the text because I think it helps us to understand what's happening. What, this is the structure of it. We are told that the king of Sodom comes out to meet Abram, but then, but then that, that interaction is cut off. It's interrupted, right? There's a pause in the narrative here, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, comes. And he hasn't, up to this point, been mentioned in any of the, the book of Genesis, right? Like, like, we have not seen him at all. It's like out of left field, this guy shows up, and he's bringing bread and wine to give this, this act of hospitality to Abram. And so we get first Melchizedek's response to Abram's 
victory. And he blesses him, it says. And he says, blessed be Abram by God most high, God who possesses all of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies, Abram, into your hands. God did it. Then, then we come back to the king of Sodom. We come back to the king of Sodom's response to what Abram did to conclude it. And this, this order is intentional to make sure us as the reader understands that the author is trying to set up a stark contrast between these two kings, between the two responses they have and the two offers that they give Abram. The two options for successful believers are presented right here between these two world powers. First, you have the wicked king of Sodom. And we know he's wicked because in chapter 13, verse 13, if you remember a couple weeks ago, it very explicit, explicitly says that the people of Sodom were, were wicked. It uses the same phrase that was used for people who were alive in Noah's day before the flood. So they, we know that the Bible is calling them as, they're as wicked as they come. And so the king clearly is going to be a, a, a wicked man who is promoting this kind of wickedness in his city. And Lot moved into a community filled with the most sinful people. And, and, and I want to note here that while there are often people who say that, all, that, that, that sin is sin, And while it's true that all sin is a damnable offense before God, I want you to see that there is clearly some sin that the Bible defines as more wicked. That there are some sins and that the quantity of sins matter biblically. That Sodom is more wicked than other cities. Even the other cities around Abram who are also wicked. But there, the Bible distinguishes that certain sins and more sins carry heavier judgments and heavier consequences. And we'll see that with Sodom later in a few chapters. But since Lot was living in Sodom, it's the recovery of the Sodomites and their possessions among whom is Lot's household. That's the focus. We're not concerned with the other four kings that were saved. We're just concerned right here with Sodom and with the wicked king Sodom. And then that's, he's placed in contrast to Melchizedek, which is defined as the righteous king of Salem. Why do I call him righteous? Well, his name literally translated is king of righteousness. So he's the king of righteousness, and Salem is translated in Hebrew, peace, and so he's also described as the king of peace. So we have the wicked king of Sodom in comparison to the righteous king, the king of peace, Melchizedek. And he comes from nowhere, like I said, he's not described as a king that's needing to be freed or was freed by Abram. He's not even uh, described as someone who was put under attack at any point. And if Salem is the precursor to Jerusalem, which I think it is, then he would have been in the area geographically and he would have been well aware of what was happening between these and amongst these kings. 
he would have been firsthand seen that these kings were taken, that Abram came, dispelled the raiding kings and brought these people out of bondage. And so these two kings have two responses to the success of Abram. And we, can, we can't really understand the significance of them unless we understand that all of this is linked back to Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Do you remember Genesis 12, 1 through 3? Do you remember what it says there? God makes this initial promise to Abram, right? Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those, and this is the really, really important part. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We've got to keep Genesis 12, 1 through 3 in our mind as we continue through the book of Genesis, because it's going to continue to have links with everything else that's happening. And so it says there that there are some who will bless Abram and be blessed for it, and some will dishonor him and they'll be cursed for it. And this is what we have in these two kingly responses. Melchizedek is presented first as the one who blesses Abram. The righteous king blesses Abram. He rightly identifies God as creator and possessor of everything. He is a true brother in the Lord. He reiterates the blessing of God on Abram. How sweet it is, friends. When other people confirm what God has said is true of us and what he's promised of us. Is that not a wonderfully encouraging thing? And so that's what Melchizedek does with Abram here. He rightly identifies that it was God who delivered him from his enemies. And it confirms and it's confirmed in Abram giving Melchizedek an offering of 10% of everything. Melchizedek is spiritually and tangibly blessed back by blessing Abram. You see Genesis 3, 12, 3 at work here. But, but I want to pause. Oh, I don't want to pause yet, actually. I want to say first, conversely, the king of Sodom dishonors Abram, right? The king says, hey, well, just give me my people. And you can have the possessions. Now, now you might say, think to yourself at first, well, that makes sense. Like, that's, what, what's the big deal about that? But in contrast to Melchizedek and Melchizedek's response, in contrast to Melchizedek coming, not having Abram needing to save him for anything, and yet giving him so much, here you have the king of Sodom who owes everything to Abram, kind of saying, well, whatever, whatever. The response is pitiful. It's almost like he begrudges having to offer the possessions, but does it anyway. At the very least, it doesn't do justice to the kind of honor Abram deserves for saving them from certain destruction, from slavery, right? And here's where I want to pause, because I think there's a lesson here for us. What is our response, Christian, to Jesus who saves us from absolute destruction? What is our response to a Savior who has saved us from slavery, from certain death? I wonder how often it's actually quite underwhelming. I wonder how often we pay lip service to it, and yet 
in reality, we are dishonoring the God who has saved us. Do we begrudgingly offer back to God a few things? Well, okay, I guess I'll give you this, whatever. When Jesus expects nothing less than all of who we are in return. Everything. See, Genesis pictures mankind as vassal kings under a sovereign Lord, a sovereign king, God. Jesus has saved all of who you are, all of what you have, all of it is owed to him. What should be the response if we are faithful and not wicked little kings? Okay, back to the story for a second. These kings, in their responses, they present two offers. Melchizedek puts forth God's blessing. Here's, it's a reminder of the promises that God made in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and other places that haven't yet been fulfilled. It's a reminder that because of those promises, God is doing things right now. God has delivered these enemies into his hands right now. It's a reminder to put for Abram to put all of his hope and all of his trust in God's actions for him, but it's not a quick solution. It's not a quick fix for success. In contrast, Sodom puts forth worldly success. His offer, it makes some sense, and it's an offer that under different circumstances may possibly be how God wants to bless someone. God does bless righteous people through wicked people at times. Abram himself left Egypt loaded. And so we know that that happens. But here, here it's important to recognize that it's offered by a king whom our author, Moses, wants us to see as utterly wicked. Comes right after Melchizedek pronouncing that God, that God would be the one who would bless Abram. Imagine if you're the Israelites reading this, walking through the wilderness on the way to the promised land, the original audience of this text, what it would remind you is don't stop. Don't stop amongst these wicked nations that you're walking through. Do not take the quick fix. Do not Try to seek success and blessing from living amongst them. No, I've promised you the promised land. It flows with milk and honey. Keep walking. It'll take a little bit of time. But that's where your blessing comes. See, Sodom's offer is a shortcut. It's an alternative route to success that shortcuts God's promises and blessings by grabbing at worldly success. No need to align with and trust God. It's right here. Just take it. All you have to do is align yourself with just a little wicked king. It's not a big deal. Just come live in Sodom for a bit, like Lot did. Just take a little something so it looks to everyone else like God's faithful. we can see this kind of thing today. We can see it in the Christian who says, well, this is pretty standard procedure in my line of work. If I don't do it, I'll fall behind. 
without regard to whether standard procedure is actually honoring and glorifying to God. We can see it in the church who has success because God blesses them, but then in a mad scramble to try to maintain that success or increase it leans on earthly means to produce more perceived success rather than real success. We can see it in the Christian who goes into debt for stuff because they can, and that's what everyone else does, and it looks successful, so why don't I do more of that, even though they are having no regard for whether they are stewarding what God has given them well. But here's the troubling question. Sometimes God's blessing and the world's success can outwardly look very similar. How can we discern between the two? This is the part that really, really stumped me for a bit as I examined this text. But I think it's the most critical piece. You see, Abraham, Abram's choice in verses 22 and 24 reveals how successful believers stay faithful believers. And as we look at what he decides, I want you to see the overall point. Abram's highest concern wasn't what he did or didn't get from this situation. That was not his number one concern. While God's promise included material blessings, he didn't want material blessings purely for material blessings' sake. He did not look for success purely to be successful. That was not his concern. He didn't try to desperately secure them. He wanted God's blessing because that's what God had promised. He wanted no wicked man to be able to say, oh, you've heard about Abram? Yeah, you know, if it wasn't for me. Not only that, but Abram didn't even want to be considered a self-made man. He wanted everyone to know it was God who did it. He wanted everyone to know I was a nobody. God called me out. God led me here. God blessed me. God did it. The Lord God most high. That's the highest concern. Abram's highest concern was for God to get the glory. That's a motivation that only comes through faith, friends. It only comes through faith. And I think it's the secret sauce for discerning between God's blessing and worldly success. What, what's this mean for us? Well, if we looked forward at Hebrews 6 and 7, it tells us about this particular interaction. And it says that Jesus has become, quote, become a high priest forever after the order of who? Melchizedek. That Melchizedek here was resembling the Son of God, that he was a foreshadowing of Christ. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the Psalms about Melchizedek, like Psalm 110. And, quote, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Just like Melchizedek said, no, the promises that God gave you in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, you can be sure that's going to happen. Jesus says, you can be sure. You can be sure that God will bless you, God's people. Melchizedek reiterates God's promises, and Jesus reiterates, clarifies, enhances, wins, and guarantees them. 
Jesus reveals even more how God has delivered our enemies into our hands and blessed us through him. So how can Abram's story help us when we are successful to remain faithful by placing God's glory as our highest priority, just like Abram? I want to give you three questions in application here. Three questions that you can ask yourself to help discern if you are running for the world's success or if you are running after God's blessing. And there's nothing special really about these three questions. But I think if you take the time to ask these three questions, genuinely desiring what God wants for your life, genuinely desiring to pursue him, genuinely desiring his glory rather than your own. I'm not saying you'll always get it right. In fact, I'm quite certain that you won't always get it right. We, we, our hearts are deceptive sometimes. But, but I do promise it will transform your life. I do promise that as you ask these questions of literally everything in your life, and as you pursue God's word and as you pursue him, the Holy Spirit will transform your heart and he will make it increasingly easy to discover what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So here's the questions. Question one, will this please God? Will this please God? Friends, I can't, I can't emphasize this enough. In literally every single decision you make, you need to ask this question. Will this please God? And you think, well, Cody, really? In every single decision, like, uh, you know, I'm, if I'm at work and I'm doing it, really, every single, yes, yes, as a Christian, yes, every single decision. And this will become much faster to discern, but if you've never accustomed yourself to wondering, hmm, I wonder if this will please God, it may take a little time at first. Because it's a reorienting of our brain. We are from birth programmed to think, will this please me? Will this please me? Will this please me? And it's going to take some time to reorient your brain and your heart to think, will this please God instead? So look with me in verse 22. Abram had made an oath to God. That's, that's what it means, right? It, he, he raised his hand to the Lord God. He made this oath to God. And Abram confesses this with his mouth and with his heart, that, it, it, that God is who God really is. And friends, listen, what pleases God more than us declaring him as being who he really is. Consider Psalm 46 through 8, which Christ quoted of himself. It says, In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. You know, do you delight to do the will of God? The point of Christ being the better high priest after Melchizedek is that he is a one-time sacrifice that truly takes care of sin. We don't need to have burnt offerings. We don't need to have sin offerings. Christ was all that, and he desires his faithful people who delight in him to do what he pleases, what pleases him. 
Hebrews says that it's only by faith that we can please God. He doesn't desire more sacrifices. He desires faith-filled obedience. Will you ask yourself this question? Will this please God? Question two. And I'll say, actually, I'll say this first. If you don't know whether or not it will please God, listen, he's given you a manual for that. He's given you something to help you to see. Did you see that, that last bit of that psalm? Your law is where? Within my heart. How do I know what pleases God? How do I know what his will is? He's given it to us right here. If you're not in it, how will you ever know what will please him? Question two, will this make Jesus known? Look at verse 23. Abram won't take anything if it takes the focus from God and puts it onto someone else. He wanted his wealth and success to point back to and to affirm the Lord as being who the Lord says he is, the promise-keeping God. Even when we are facing options that may seem okay on the face, we will choose the one that makes Jesus known over the one that may distract people from him. Listen, when you're choosing a job, when you're deciding about kids, when you're buying a house, when you're literally doing anything, are you considering these things? Are you considering how it may open up opportunities to make Jesus known and to reveal God's character to others? Christian, you ought to be. Why do we divide our lives and there are some spiritual parts and some parts that we're supposed to think about Jesus in and talk about Jesus in and then there's some parts where, you know, just do what you want. It's fine. No. All of our lives are Christ when we're in him. All of our lives go through that filter. Okay. Will this please God? Will this make Jesus known? Third question, will this rightly benefit others? Will this rightly benefit others? And I think you've got to ask the questions in those, that order, by the way. I put them in that order for a reason. Because I think if you get this order wrong, sometimes you can do what you think is a benefit to others, but it's not what pleases God, and it ends up that it's not actually rightly benefiting others. Okay? So you've got to put these in the right order. In verse 24, Abram does right by those who have partnered with him. Abram doesn't take the possessions of the king of Sodom for himself, not because there was anything wrong necessarily with the spoils or anything wrong with being given a reward for a job well done. For Abram, it doesn't work because it distracts from God's promises. But it's totally fine for the others who are with him to benefit. And I think this is a micro-fulfillment of this Genesis 12, 1, uh, 3 thing, right? Those who partnered with him, those who were, went along with him, were blessed for having been alongside of Abram. They walk away richer. Wherever Christ's people are doing Christ's work for Christ's kingdom, it ought to benefit those around us. It ought to benefit our neighborhood that we live in. It ought to benefit our city that we're right here. It ought to benefit our nation because we are following Christ in it. 
Now, wicked men may not recognize that. And they may dishonor us like the king of Sodom did to Abram. But we do what rightly benefits others, not because the world says it's right, but because God says that's what's right. If we go with what the world says is right, but God does not, we will end up doing damage to others. And so we desire foremost for others the spiritual blessing of faith in Christ, right? There's nothing more of a blessing than that. There's nothing that is more glorifying to God than someone who did not believe in Jesus now believing in Jesus. But it doesn't end there. It should be seen tangibly in our lives, the way we interact with others, the way that we serve and give, seek the betterment of our community and our neighborhood. Jesus said something like this in Matthew 6, and I kind of want to end with this as an illustration. You know, Jesus was talking about his, to his disciples about, about giving to the needy and about praying. And he was pointing out, I don't know if you remember this story, he was pointing out some supposed religious leaders of the day who did their righteous deeds and prayed their prayers intentionally to be seen. And they were, they were doing it by what we might call today like virtue signaling, right? Like they were just out there, it was, it was to be seen. It wasn't because their heart was really wanting to glorify God and, and please him in that thing. And so Jesus said that if you do these things to be seen by others, then you've received your reward in full. You've gotten what you're going to get right here on earth. People will give you a pat on the back. They'll applaud you. But you're not getting that from God. You, you, you got it from where you want it. You want to do your righteous deeds for your glory from other people? Great. I'll let you have that. But you're not getting it from the Father. And his point was not that we ought to be super stealth in everything that we do or to make sure that no one ever knows any good deed that we've done or any prayer that we've prayed. In fact, just in Matthew 5, just a chapter before, he says to do these things and let your light shine before men that they might, what? That they might glorify your God in heaven. And so the issue is, who do we want to get the glory. The issue in discerning between the world's blessing and, and God's blessing. Worldly success or success that comes to us because God is blessing us. The issue is this. Who do we want to get the glory? You or God? Do you want what pleases God or what pleases you? Do you want them to give God praise or to pay you back? Do you want to be a blessing to others or a blessing to yourself? Whatever question, whatever situation you're facing, whatever success or unsuccess you might be having right now, if you want to remain faithful to God in the midst of it, God's glory must be and must stay your highest priority, number one at all times. That's it. And if his glory is your priority, I think these three questions, which Abraham, which Abram is, is an example of, will help you to discern 
between the two. And, but, but listen, if, if, if God is your highest priority, if God's glory is your highest priority, even when you mess it up, the grace of Christ be upon you. And I promise his spirit will get you. He'll use that to get you where you need to go. I promise he, because it's happened a million times in my life. With that in mind, let's pray. And let's remember that grace that was exhibited for us on the cross that makes any of this possible, that makes any of this promise tangible, all of it, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, all of it, Melchizedek, all of it is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.